All right. Praise God. <laughs> Anson has a disciple. So, so, so excited to see Ryan coming up here to learn the ways of Anson and do announcements. It's so great. Praise God. Open up your Bibles to Mark 8, 34 through 38. So glad you could join us. If you're here for the first time, uh, we read the passage, or I read it, and it's going to be up on the screen behind me. And if you're joining us online, you'll find it on your screen at home. But Mark 8, 34 through 38. Okay, this is God's word. And Jesus called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much, Lord, for this time. And you are truly high and exalted. You are holy. You are glorious. And you, yet you are so near. You are with us. So Lord God, we just come before you. We draw close to you. Lord, please be with us at this time. And please meet us, Lord, through the pages of your scripture. Thank you for everyone that you, you have drawn here today. Be with everyone who is online as well. Lord, what we want is we want to hear your heart. What you are saying to those who would follow you. So Lord God, speak. We are listening we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what does it mean to be Jesus' disciple? That is the question that we've been looking at for the entire year. It's only been about a month now. But this is the question that we're trying to answer, and we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark to find the answers. And so this is what we've seen so far. But a disciple is what? It is a learner, a student, or a follower of someone's teachings or way of life. So you know what this means? This means all of us are disciples to something or someone. So this is something that you should already be familiar with. And some of you are incredibly dedicated already to your discipleship, to that something or that someone. So it could be a career, it could be a person, a relationship, some life goals that you're pursuing. But we are all disciples to something or someone. So the question this year is not, are you going to be a disciple? The answer is already yes. We're already disciples. But the question is, whose disciple are you going to be? Right? Whose disciple are you going to be? And if there's only one person's teachings and way of life that you can dedicate yourself to following, whose would it be? Have you ever asked yourself that? But whose teachings and way of life am I going to follow? For some of you, it might be your dad, maybe your mom, you had good parents. For some, maybe it's a professor or a supervisor at work. Maybe it's somebody you found on YouTube and you subscribed. But who are you going to follow? Well, with the limited time we have on this earth, and trust me, take it from an older guy, life is but a mist. Some of you younger people, you're going to blink your eyes and you're going to be my age. <laughs> but life is a mist. And given that, there's only one answer that truly makes sense. It is to follow Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And we've looked at this for the last several weeks, but he is the most scandalous, strange, brilliant, influential, and world-changing life who has ever lived and will ever live. And that is no exaggeration. And to become Jesus' disciple and to follow him is the greatest thing that you can do with your life. And that is no exaggeration. By far, that is the greatest single thing you can do with your life in this brief time on earth. And if you don't understand that yet or believe that yet, then it's well worth your time this upcoming year. Seek the Lord, seek the answers, and try to understand why that might be true. Okay, why would I give my life and dedicate my life to this person in history, Jesus of Nazareth, who billions of people around the world still say is alive today, who they follow. Why would I do that? Well, that is the big question. 
So being Jesus' disciple and following his teachings and way of life is what we've been looking at. And we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark for the answers of what that looks like. And so far, we've seen how no one chooses to be Jesus' disciple. So that's the first thing we saw many weeks ago. But we can only become Jesus' disciples by hearing and believing the gospel of the kingdom. So you can't just one day wake up and go, okay, I've heard enough. I'm just going to be his disciple. I just choose to. Well, unless you've heard the gospel of the kingdom, you cannot be his disciple. But somebody needs to speak that, share that with you first. You must hear it and then believe it in the depths of your heart and then turn from your old way of life and decide to follow him. So the gospel of the kingdom must first penetrate your heart. And this is a gospel of grace that is not only a ticket to heaven, but it is a gospel that invites you into a whole new reality and way of life. What am I talking about? The kingdom of God. This is where God's will is acknowledged and done. See, this is what launches a person to following Christ. You got to hear that gospel and then believe it, and then follow. We've also looked at the disciples' portraits. So who are the people that Jesus calls to follow him? What kinds of people? Well, he calls everyone and anyone who hears, but especially the nobodies of the world. And so we see that, uh, saw that beautifully in Mark's gospel. But we're talking about the unremarkable people, the undeserving, the people who aren't, the people who can't. These are the people he particularly calls. So if you're sitting here today going, I don't even know about any of this, right? Being a disciple and, I mean, what does that even look like? Can I even do that? Well, that should be very comforting to you. If you have any doubt or fear in your heart, Jesus is calling you, right? I think this pretty much encompasses all of us, the unremarkable, the nobodies, the average people, the normal people. So that's who he calls. And then last week we saw the disciples' vital connection, There is a relationship that a disciple must have if they're going to actually live this out, and that is to be with Jesus. That is the most important, vital, indispensable connection. You must be with Jesus. In Mark 3, 14, it says, And Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. I love that. So he chooses people. Why? To just be with him. And so this means Jesus' method of discipleship was rooted in his presence. That is so important. His method of discipleship is based on his presence, him being with us. See, Jesus didn't call people to just a set of teachings, but he calls people to himself. That is the unique thing about Jesus. We learn by being with. So to be with Jesus is to be changed by Jesus. And brothers and sisters, unless you've actually experienced that, that means very little, but trust me. Trust me as a guy who's been flipped upside down, inside out by Jesus. You begin to just walk with him, spend time with him, he will transform you. And the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you will be changed by Jesus. So I I asked this last week, but how is that going, right? How is that going in your life? Are you prioritizing time with Jesus through time in his word, prayer, fellowship with other people who have Jesus. But are you prioritizing being with him? So you cannot be a disciple of Jesus unless you spend lots and lots of time with him. So these are all the things we've looked at so far. And today what I want to do is we're going to pick up right in Mark chapter 8. And we're going to come to the great pivot point in the gospel. So earlier in Mark chapter 8, to just get a little context... Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? So he kind of reached this point in his ministry where he was wanting to know directly from his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they gave some different answers. And then suddenly Peter, moved by the Holy Spirit, stood up. And then he declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was Peter's best moment by far in the Gospels. He's actually not going to have a greater moment than that until the book of Acts. But from that moment on, Mark's gospel switches gears and Jesus begins to share in earnest exactly what is about to happen. And he begins to tell his disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And once we get there, I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. I will suffer many things. I will be killed. And then I will be raised back to life after three days. And so this was 
a very, very significant shift in the gospel. Everything is now pointed towards Jerusalem. And in that moment, as Jesus was speaking, something strange happened. But a moment ago, Peter was moved by the Holy Spirit, right? And he stood up and he declared who Jesus was. He glorified Jesus. Well, now suddenly he was being moved by Satan and he rebuked Jesus. And so Peter, it says here, he pulled Jesus aside and said, don't say that, right? How can you say you're going to be killed? May it never be. And so Jesus basically was rebuked. And so here, Satan is working through Peter. And I think when Peter said that, he was speaking on behalf of all the disciples. Earlier, when he said, you are the Christ, he was speaking on behalf of the other disciples. Well, I believe he was speaking on behalf of all of them, if not many of them, again. But I think all of them felt this way. But all the disciples were probably wondering, don't say that, Jesus. How can you say you're going to be rejected, suffer, and then be killed? How's that possible? I mean, imagine if a best friend came to you and said one day, you know what, I just want you to know I'm about to go on a trip, and once I arrive, I'm going to suffer many things, and then I'm going to die there. I mean, what are are you going to say to your best friend? It's like, stop saying that, right? What What are you talking about? Don't say that. And why would you respond in that way? It was probably because of worry and fear, right? And that would be a good response. But when Peter said these same words, his worry and fear came from a very different place. But it came from the enemy. And worry and fear, by the way, is a doorway that the enemy often uses in people's lives. Worry and fear are just natural instincts. They come from our natural understanding of things. They are emotions of the flesh. What I mean is they are just natural human responses to the environment around us. And yet they're powerful. You know that. When you're afraid, when you're worrying, it can move you in a certain direction. It can cause you to act. And so the enemy will use these things as doorways into our lives. And this is what happened to Peter. So the enemy moved upon Peter and he rebuked Jesus. And here's the point I'm trying to make. But the enemy does not appear often in the Gospels, right? He doesn't show up very often. And so when he does, we should take notice. So here's the question. Why did the enemy show up right here and try to stop Jesus from going to the cross? Why right here, right now? Why right at the moment Jesus began to turn his face towards Jerusalem and said, I will go there with you. I will be rejected, suffer many things, and then be killed, and then raised back to life. Why did the enemy step in right there and tempt Peter to rebuke Jesus? Well, the cross is where the work of salvation would be done. Amen? It's where the head of Satan would be crushed. Jesus can only save us because he went to the cross. There was no other way. So that's one reason. The enemy wants to bring a stop to all of that. But here's another reason. I believe the enemy also tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross because the cross is the very heart of discipleship to Jesus. And that's the main point for today. But the cross is the heart of true discipleship to Jesus. And if Jesus never went to the cross, the disciples would never be saved by the cross and they would never be shaped by the cross. Their life would never go on from that point looking more and more like Jesus' life on the cross. And so the enemy not only wanted to stop Jesus from going there, he wanted to stop the disciples from truly following him going there. Does that make sense? The enemy wanted to put the brakes on all of that. Because he knew if the disciples truly followed Jesus by taking up their cross, nothing could stop them, including Satan. Nothing could pull them back from spreading the gospel throughout the world to the ends of the earth. That's why we're here today. So this is the backdrop for Jesus' words in Mark 8, 34 through 38. Okay, we need to understand this context. But Jesus knew what the enemy was up to. He also knew how skewed his disciples were in their naturalistic, humanistic mindset with all that fear and worry, right? That's just all flesh. It's just natural understanding, responding in a natural way. And that was really skewing their understanding. And so Jesus, knowing all of that, had to make sure I need to explain to you the true heart of discipleship 
You guys need to understand this. If you're going to follow me, you need to understand what it really looks like to be my disciple. And so in Mark 8, 34 through 38, Jesus explained the heart of true discipleship. And in our passage, it neatly breaks down into three different parts. But true discipleship is taking up the cross, seeing the reward of the cross, and finally bearing the shame of the cross. And this is what consecrates, in other words, sets apart disciples of Jesus from everyone else. This is what makes them so unique and so different. This is why disciples of Jesus have changed the world. This is what consecrates, consecrates them. So first, a true disciple of Jesus takes up the cross. Okay, look at verse 34, Mark 8. And Jesus called to himself the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So it's plain as day right there. Taking up your cross is the heart of discipleship to Jesus. If we don't understand this, then you will never be a disciple of Jesus. And this call, by the way, did not go out only to the super committed and the super spiritual. Because some of us here, I know how, how it is. You guys hear these kinds of messages and you immediately dismiss it in your heart. Oh, I'll never be that committed. I'm cool just coming to church and reading my Bible here and there and you know, learning some things, but that's not really for me. Well, I want to gently point out to you, you're wrong. <laughs> and the reason is because Jesus made this call to who? The crowd. In Luke's gospel, in his version, it says, a great crowd, anyone and everyone who was flocking to Jesus. And to that great crowd, Jesus said, if anyone, you can circle that word, anyone, we're not just talking about pastors, missionaries, the really hardcore, the super committed, anyone who wants to be a Christian, anyone who wants to be my follower, anybody, if you're going to be a believer in me, and follow me, you must take up your cross. So in other words, this is 101, basic Christianity. This is the beginning point of a believer's life, not the climax. This is the base camp of Mount Everest, not the summit. Another way to say it is this is what God expects of every normal, average believer. This is what he wants. This is what he expects. We must all take up our cross. But what does that mean, right? Yeah, that sounds like a lot of religious lingo. You might have heard it before. Well, to the original hearers, this would have been abundantly clear. There was no doubt in their minds what this meant. But this meant only one thing. Somebody only took up a Roman cross in ancient times for one reason, to be executed upon it. That's the only reason you would grab a cross. You don't grab a cross to, you know, make a statement. You don't grab a cross to, you know, turn it into art. Okay, that's what people do today. But in ancient times, you would only grab a cross for one reason. You were going to die on it. So the cross in ancient times was used for only one thing. It was a brutal device for executing criminals and rebels. The Romans did not invent crucifixion, but they used it more frequently and more effectively than anybody else. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Spartacus, very old movie. You might want to watch it if you haven't. But in that movie, there's a very graphic scene at the end of the movie of the Appian Way. This is the first and most famous highway in Rome. And in ancient times, even in Jesus' day, this road was regularly lined with crosses and on every cross was a person crucified on it. And so there was a scene like that in the movie Spartacus with Kirk Douglas, good movie. But that is regularly what people would have seen in Rome is they go up and down the Appian Way and they see these crosses lining the road with people crucified on every cross. It was like a forest of crosses. And every one of those crosses was a billboard shouting Rome's power, their authority to execute anyone they pleased. So that is what a cross represented. So now here, Jesus, meek and mild, the shepherd of Israel, comes and he's healing people, feeding people, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and then at one point he turns to them and says, if you want to follow me, you need to take up the cross. Take up your cross. And when he said that, everyone knew exactly what he meant. It could only mean one thing. It meant death. Now, it could mean literal death. For some people, following Christ literally could lead to physical death, like on the mission field. But for most people, especially in America, that's not what it means. But more to the point, Jesus was talking about death to self. Right, death to self. John Stott, the famous theologian, he already passed away in the UK. 
But he said this in The Cross of Christ. This is perhaps the greatest work that he ever wrote. But in this book, he said, the cross is not an irritable husband or a cantankerous wife. It is instead the symbol of death to the self. So please don't think about the cross as a big, you know, toe, toenail <laughs> that broke off, a hangnail. That's not what God is talking about. It's not a parking spot that you couldn't find on the way to church. It is talking about death to self. And to put it even more simply, death to self translates daily to what? What are we talking about if you're going to die to yourself every single day? Well, Jesus said it best. He said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. That is death to self. And Jesus, by the way, prayed that hours before going to the physical cross. And that summarized perfectly what death to self meant. I mean, that's what it exactly meant to him. And that's what it means to all of us. It means, Father, not my will, but your will be done. So death to self, the cross, means total surrender of your desires, wants, goals, pursuits, dreams. Okay, is that clear? Am I being clear here? I'm trying to be as clear as possible. It means laying down everything that we may desire in our natural hearts before God, and you say, and I say, not my will, but your will be done. Okay, that is taking up the cross. Here's another way to say it. It's nothing less than total surrender of the will to God. Total surrender. You know, I love this story, but Andrew Murray, he was a bishop, a pastor in South Africa, wrote many great books. But one day he was in a church meeting and they were talking about what the church in Scotland needed more than anything else. And so they were kind of debating. And then at one point, Murray asked one of the church leaders there, whom he greatly respected, what is your answer? Like, what do you think the church needs today more than ever? And then this church leader quietly, but with conviction, said absolute surrender to God. That's the one thing the church needs, absolute surrender to God. And Murray, when he heard that, he said, those words struck me as never before, like a lightning bolt. It just struck him. And I believe it struck him because it resonated. He knew it, right? He knew that's true. That's what the church needs more than ever before, and I would agree for the church today. That's what our church needs. This resonates for me as well. This is what I need more than ever before. We need absolute surrender to God. Not my will, but yours be done. So absolute surrender to God is the greatest need of the church in his generation, is the greatest need in our generation. And so this is what taking up your cross means. And so every morning, to make it even more practical, a disciple should wake up and while brushing his or her teeth or maybe taking a shower, they should pray. They should calm their heart before God and they should pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done today. But Lord, but I can't do this, right? This is so hard. So I need your grace. I cannot do this on my own. But a disciple should wake up every single day and pray that prayer or some version of that. Lord, today, again, today, not my will, but yours be done. So this is what Jesus is calling every disciple to do, from the youngest to the oldest, from the newest to the most experienced. This is how he expects his disciples to live every day of their lives. Why? Because this is how he lived his life every single day he was here. Every day, Jesus, our Lord, woke up and said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And you know what, as I grow older and grayer, and I'm getting there, I'm realizing that my life of faith is becoming more and more simple. You know, back when I was younger, I kind of thought about a lot of things, it was very complicated, but more and more it's just becoming very, very simple. Now don't misunderstand, Christianity and scripture can explain the most complicated issues that we face, like human nature, the purpose of life, the end of history, why we're here but it's lived out in the most simplest terms. Okay? It's the most deep and profound and complicated, and yet it's the most simplest thing. It's simply waking up every day saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Oswald Chambers, but he says, surrender is not the surrender of the external, but of the will. When that is done, all is done. I love that. When you get to that point of just surrendering your will before God because of what he did for you, When that is done, all is done. Not my will, but yours be done, amen? 
So do that every day and you've surrendered all. You've taken up your cross. So once that's settled on the inside, what does it look like on the outside though? So what are some things that we might actually surrender? Well, for this, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we don't have time to look at all the different passages, but Jesus, he just gives a beautiful manifesto on how to live life in the kingdom of God. But this is a manifesto, or another way to say it is a mission statement on how disciples should live. And through one teaching after another in the sermon, Jesus was showing what a cross-shaped life looks like. So if you're going to take up your cross, if you're going to die to self every day, okay, what does that look like outwardly? Well, for the sake of time, let me just mention the different things that he talks about. First, death to self-justification, right? Death to self-justification. Jesus starts out the entire sermon with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? These are people who have finally gotten to the point in their life where they just give up justifying themselves. They no longer have to prove themselves right. They no longer prove themselves significant. And every single one of us here, we are doing that night and day. We got to show people who we are, right? I got to prove myself at work. I got to get my boss to recognize me, my, my professor, that girl that I like, right? That boy that I like. I mean, I got to prove who I am to others. I got to be significant. I got to be somebody. The poor in spirit say, no more. I'm done with that. People who prove themselves better than others. Why? Because my identity is wrapped up in that. I got to lift up myself just even a little bit. Otherwise, I, I, I don't know who I am. So they retaliate. They get even. They have to show people who's right. I'm right. The poor in spirit say, no more. I'm done with that. And how? It's because the cross kills all of it. Because upon the cross, these poor in spirit, they recognize that Jesus offers a far more superior justification. See, Jesus upon the cross secured for us an unconditional, eternal justification. Once and for all, he said, it is finished. Because I lived the righteous life in your place and died the sinner's death in your place. Now you just receive your significance, your identity, your worth in me. See, it's done. So that's one thing. What else? Okay, what, what else shows up to the person who takes up the cross? Death to self-determination calling the shots, living your life the way you want. See, in the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the kingdom of God. See, you're no longer living for the things that you want. Self-determination is done. In contrast, people who are not in the kingdom, not transformed by the gospel, they are deeply anxious about trying to make their life go in a certain direction. It's got to go here by this time. And it has to, right? Why? Well, it just has to. And of course, they might have some good reasons for it, but it just has to, right? It's got to go here. It's got to be at this time. And it has to look at in this way. And the person who has taken up the cross says, no more. I'm at peace. I don't determine where my life goes even tomorrow. It doesn't have to go anywhere by any time. It, it doesn't have to look like anything. And you know what? Pastors need to hear this more than anyone because I've been there and I've talked to a lot of pastors where they start ministry, they start preaching the gospel, thinking in their minds, oh, the church has to get here and it's got to look in this way and I got to become this kind of a pastor and have this level of influence and this many Twitter followers. The person who takes up the cross says, it's all done. It's gone. Self-determination is over. The cross puts it all to death. What else? Death to self-preservation. The cross and the gospel transforms how we respond to evil in our lives. And we can talk a little bit more about that at the end, but, but as we begin to faithfully follow Christ, things come your way and you say, you know what? Yes, I love my life. Yes, I want to protect myself. But if following Christ means going there, I will jump there. I will go there. That's taking up your cross. What else? Death to personal insult. Jesus said in this sermon, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek. Death to insult. And so, of course, this is not a call to pacifism, being a doormat, but you're no longer riled up, right? It's no longer stirring anything up inside of you. Why? Because you've died. You've taken up the cross. Let me just mention a few more. Death or personal possessions, Matthew 5.40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone wants your shirt, give him your coat too. 
Why? Because these things are a blessing to me, but I know who I am. God provides all things. Everything I need is wrapped up in God, so you can give whatever you have to anyone who is in need. Death to personal possessions. Death to personal plans and time. Matthew 5.41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. How many guys have plans every day? And you have to, again, you gotta determine your life, right? So you gotta get here by this time. And then suddenly, somebody shows up in great need, right? A friend needs to move, or you bump into a homeless person who suddenly starts talking to you about all their problems. Oh, 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 I'm so sorry, I, I gotta leave, I gotta go. Well again, taking up your cross means, no, you know what? I've died to my own plans and my own time. Those things are important, I need to be faithful, but Lord, is this your will? If it is, then I'm here, I'm here. And then finally, just one more, but death to personal finances. Matthew 5.42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who asks. And so again, no more of this clinging, right? I need this because it brings me security, justification. You've died to all that. And so now you can freely give. So do you see this? I can mention more, but these are all the different ways that death to self and taking up your cross begins to show externally. And so this is a tall order. Who can follow this, right? Who can truly do this every day? And this is why Jesus said to his disciples, you must count the cost before jumping into being my disciple. Count the cost. To quote John Stott again, he gave this warning. And this is a little longer, but it's very good. The Christian landscape today is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish, for thousands of people who still ignored Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. This is the great scandal of Christendom, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which the Christian civilization has spread large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved Enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a gray, soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. So those are his words. But I think it's very true. So, so many Christians today, maybe they've never heard it. It might not even be their fault. But they do not know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is just Christianity 101. You must take up your cross and follow him. So this is the first heart of true discipleship. But there's more. But the next heart of true discipleship is seeing the reward of the cross, seeing the reward of the cross. So after stunning the crowds with the demands of discipleship, which is take up your cross, Jesus now built on that to explain why someone might do this, right? So he's building his argument. Why would someone even consider this? So it says in Mark 8, verse 35, Jesus said for. So that word for means he's building on what he just said before. So he's explaining, why would you do this, right? Why would you want to take up your cross and die to yourself? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? So this was another shock to the crowds. But Jesus was answering the question, why would I want to do this? And his answer is, if you try to keep your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will ultimately save it. But how can that be, right? This probably was the reaction of the crowd. But, but how can that be? How can losing your life, in other words, through the cross, bring life? Yeah, how can that be? Well, Jesus, because of his ministry and what he did with his life, he completely upended and reversed the meaning of the cross. And this continued for 2,000 years, even to today. But he upended and reversed the meaning of the cross. So what do I mean? Well, the Bible says everyone who sins will die. And that's enough to chew on for an entire year. Everyone who sins will die eternally. And yet Jesus took away that death sentence by dying in our place on the cross. Amen? Well, when that happened, several different things happened. But on the cross, first, Jesus brought peace between us and God. You can actually know the living God who created you. 
Because of your sin, there was wrath upon your life and you were separated from God, the creator of your soul, the one who produced you and created you and put you in this world. You are separated from that God and yet now because of his death on the cross, you can be at peace with this God. On the cross, Jesus also crushed the enemy. God prophesied this at the very beginning of scripture, Genesis 3.15, the seed, the Messiah, shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. And so it happened. On the cross, Satan hurt Jesus. Jesus was hurt. His heel was bruised. And yet, on the cross, Satan's head was crushed by Jesus. And so this came to pass. So what does that mean? Well, on the cross, everything Satan had to accuse us with was taken away. Okay, all the things you've done that separate you between, from you and God, all the things that you carry around that condemn you, all the sin that just brings shame and guilt in your life that you would not share with anybody, all the things that Satan used to accuse you on the cross, it was all taken away. So Satan now is an enemy with no teeth and no claws. So that happened. On the cross, Jesus also flipped the world order upside down. Okay, what do I mean? Well, I've talked about this for several weeks in the past, but before the cross, people saw the world in a certain way. People still see it this way. But power is what? Greater than weakness. And we know this because the moment somebody with a lot of power and influence shows up, what happens? <gasps> right? Your eyes get big. It's like, oh my God, Jeff Bezos is here? Anson would, would probably fall at Jeff. No, I'm just kidding. Well, he works at Amazon. He works there, but maybe not. Maybe not. He might be the one to you know, run away. But it's like, oh my gosh, right? And you just fall at whoever is great. And it doesn't even have to be a celebrity, Right? The boss of your company. Oh my gosh, the boss is here. The celebrity pastor at the conference. Oh my gosh, he's standing next to me. So that's the world. Power is greater than weakness. Wisdom is what? Greater than foolishness. Wealth is greater than poverty. Being served is greater than serving others. And yet, through a single event, through Jesus' death on the cross, everything was upended and flipped upside down. Now and forever, weakness is what? greater than power. Foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. Being poor in God is greater than being rich in the world. And serving others is greater than being served. And if you grew up in this Western culture, then you already know this. Why? Because Christianity has so thoroughly saturated and influenced that the society we live in, you already know this. Yeah, it's better to serve others. It's not cool to have all the money and die rich. You should probably give a lot of that away. Why would you even think that? Why would you even have those values? It's because of the cross. So as I've been saying, the cross has changed the world order so much, especially here in the West, we don't even realize it. It's just the air we breathe. To quote a secular hysteria, uh, historian, not a hysterian, historian, he said Christianity is the most transformative and revolutionary ideology that has ever existed. It's changed everything. So what does this mean? Jesus turned this symbol of death, this hideous, gruesome symbol of execution into now a symbol of new life. Okay, this is what he's talking about here. So why did Jesus go through the agony of the cross? Okay, why would anybody embrace the cross? I remember in the movie, uh, the last, um, what was the movie uh, of Jesus that Mel Gibson made? What was that called? I forgot. The Passion of the Christ, that's right. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, when Jesus was handed the cross, he hugged it. I remember that. He embraced it. He hugged it. Why would he do that? Are you insane? Are you out of your mind? That's what people thought. Well, the reason why he did it, Scripture says, is for the joy set before him. He saw the life of the cross on the other side, the life that it would bring. So everyone who's found this surrender life to God will tell you that this is true that there is true and lasting life on the other side of the cross. Once you come to Jesus and you begin to take up your cross, now you find true and lasting eternal life. So Mark 8.35 tells us there is an infinitely good reason to surrender your life, all of it, to Christ. It says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so this is the reason why we take up our cross and daily say, not my will, but yours be done. It's because you are going to find true life. Amen? And so let me ask you, when you look in the depths of your heart, when you look just within and you're trying to live your life, right? You're trying to order your life. And you look within your heart, I mean, what are you basing your hope in? 
to find this kind of life? Where are you going to find true life when you look within you? When I look within my heart, what I see is a lot of conflicted interests. Okay, I, I want to do this and pursue this. Oh, but I also want to be with my kids and my wife and spend a lot of time with them. Okay, I want to grow the church and spend a lot of time here, but I also want to do this with my family. So there's a lot of conflicted interest. You know, I, I see myself in this way, but oh, but tomorrow I see myself in a different way. And so, so, so what do you have within you that can produce this kind of a life? I would suggest nothing. There's nothing. And yet when you come to the cross, there is new life. You know, yesterday I had a, a, a wonderful lunch with some people. It was, it was great uh, having, uh, it was more of a brunch, but we ate brunch together. Um, and there was a new person that I was introduced to. It was, it was great getting to know this person. But during that brunch, I shared the story. I got to share a little bit of my testimony of how when I was in college, I remember distinctly the day I decided to give my life to full-time ministry, which in a way was giving my life to Christ. But I remember it, clear as day. It was junior year, towards the end of that year. A lot of things had happened prior during that year. Terrible things in my family. Younger brother who passed away, massive you know, conflict in my family. All kinds of stuff was happening. But I finally got to a point where I said, Lord, I don't know exactly what this will look like, but if you're calling me into full-time ministry, and I'm not sure if I said these words, but I think I did. Your will be done. right? Not my will, but your will be done. And I remember distinctly getting up from my dorm room floor. I was on my knees, and then I got up, and I grabbed my backpack, and I walked down into the campus to, to go to class, and I vividly remember looking around at everybody, you know, just scurrying around on the campus, thinking to myself, I am the most blessed person on the planet, right? I am the most blessed person in the world because I know exactly where God is taking me. I know exactly what my purpose in life is. It is to serve the Lord full time. And I, and I remember I just looked at all these people scurrying around and they were just so stressed and, you know, just running to class and doing their thing. And I just felt this fullness inside. And so, again, I can't give that experience to you. You need to have your own. But, but this is the life we're talking about, right? This is what we're talking about. So what in your life can give you that, brothers and sisters? What in your life? Again, look into your heart. What do you have in your heart that can produce that kind of life? Because I know you search yourself every day, amen? What can produce this kind of life? There's nothing. Nothing the world can offer. I remember listening to Joe Rogan one time. I listened to him off and on. And in his podcast, he was just sharing honestly with the guest. You know, I've made it really big. I have millions of people following me. I have a lot of money. And he shared his testimony, well, his worldly testimony of how when he was poor, he was so hungry for fame and fortune and, and wealth. And yet he says, I'm here now. I have it all. And he says, the human being gets used to anything. That's what he said. He said, when I lived in a tiny apartment, I just wanted a big condo, and then I got a condo, and he's like, I got used to that. And then I wanted a big house, a mansion, and then he got a mansion, he's like, I got used to that. He's like, the human being gets used to anything, and it no longer satisfies. So if you can't take it from me, then take it from Rogan. Okay, nothing in the world. What, what can offer this kind of life? It is simply the cross, taking up your cross and following Christ. An eternal, abundant, Zoe life will begin to burst open in your life. You too will walk around going, I am the most blessed person in the world. How is it that I discovered this life? How is it? Well, it's because you're a disciple. Amen? So that's the second thing we see. The heart of true discipleship sees the reward of the cross. And then finally, it bears the shame of the cross. It bears the shame of the cross. Mark 8.38. Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So here, Jesus is clearly pointing out the shame that accompanies being his disciple. Why would he say, don't be ashamed? It's because people are going to be ashamed. And so taking up your cross and following Christ wherever he leads is going to produce a lot of shame because the world does not understand. The cross of Christ in ancient times was inherently shameful. But oftentimes we have sanitized pictures of Jesus on the cross. He has a little loincloth, but the way they executed people on the cross was they were stripped bare naked. 
So Jesus would have hung on the cross naked as the entire countryside came out to see, as he writhed in agony for each breath. People who were crucified upon crosses, every breath was in agony. He excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. And we know what excruciating means. So inherently in the cross, there's great shame. But it's not only for those who actually die on the cross, but anyone who even follows people bearing a cross is shameful. But archaeologists, they discovered this one graffiti. It's a famous graffiti. They uncovered this one ancient wall, and there was graffiti on it, an ancient graffiti. And it was a drawing of basically a man kneeling before another figure upon the cross. So there was a cross and a figure upon it, and it had the head of a donkey. I was about to use a different word a jack blank, but this is a donkey. And underneath that graffiti it said, Alexander worships his God. And so that was a pure mockery, right? This was graffiti. But in ancient times, that's how people saw Christians who would worship a crucified savior. Are you kidding me? This is your God? We worship Zeus. We worship Apollos. I mean, we worship all these mighty gods. You worship a criminal who was crucified? What a joke, right? It was a circus. And so this is the inherent shame. And so even today in our culture, there is inherent shame in bearing the cross, amen? I remember uh, one time when I was uh, back in college, there was a brother. I didn't really uh, know him that well. He went to a different church, but he decided to take a literal wooden cross and drag it around campus. He was kind of a radical type, you know, one of those like hardcore Jesus lovers. And he started dragging this wooden cross around campus. I remember one time being near him or kind of being with him And my goodness, people started yelling. It's like, Christians suck, right? I'm sorry for that word. I I apologize. I shouldn't. But that's what they said, right? You're lame, right? The cross is stupid. And even more seriously, I remember he actually got into this debate with this one person who had a very serious thought. And he came up saying, you know what? I've been deeply, deeply hurt. And my family as well is because of Christianity. And I remember he had to defend that. And at one point, he actually even knelt and said, please forgive me. On behalf of the church, I say, forgive, forgive us. But I remember that. I remember that brother getting all of that scorn by just simply taking a wooden cross and dragging it around campus at UCLA. It's a true story. You can ask people <laughs> back in 1999. <laughs> so this is the shame we're talking about. And even to this day, I see people, even pastors, unfortunately, folding because they are called, commissioned to preach the cross, to preach the gospel, and yet they're caving. But this past week, I even heard of a pastor, a very famous, well-known pastor. Most of you would know him if I mentioned his name. But he's been found to be on record, in recordings, basically minimizing the word of God, minimizing especially the Old Testament, becoming affirming of lifestyles that clearly are not warranted in the word of God. Yes, we love all people. Yes, salvation is for all. This eternal life is for all, but, but the word is the word, right? We need to stand, and yet this pastor was shown to be caving. And he's an influential pastor. And so there is great shame, and yet listen to his words. Listen to Jesus' words one more time as we close. But whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, okay, why would we be ashamed? Because of the cross. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words and the cross in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So the true disciple even sees that and says, yes, Lord, I embrace the shame. Yeah, I embrace it. You can call me dumb, stupid, lame, whatever. And please, if you're a child here, don't repeat those words. Those are not good words. <laughs> you're thinking, I have way worse words. No, but it's like, don't repeat those words. Dumb is not a good word. But I will embrace it, right? I look like a freak. I look like I'm out of step, intolerant. That is the worst sin in today's society, amen? Intolerant, even at the risk of looking intolerant, I will embrace the cross. Why? Because it's love. Okay, that's how I'm gonna love you. So with that, let's just come before the Lord. Today is communion Sunday, But the true heart of discipleship takes up the cross. The true disciple sees the reward of the cross. And finally, he or she bears the shame of the cross.
So where are you? Where do you stand? So let's just come before the Lord. Father, Lord Jesus, we worship you, Lord. And Lord, we thank you so much for your clear and uncompromising message. And I agree with that church leader who spoke to Andrew Murray. The greatest need in the church today is absolute surrender. Who hears that call and will respond? There is greatness, brothers and sisters. There is something great God is calling you to. There is something great you can give your life to. As I said earlier, this is the single greatest thing you could do with your life. It is to answer the call of Jesus to follow him and be his disciple. It is to every day wake up and take up your cross and say, not my will, but yours be done. And the cross is not only the symbol of that, but it is the power that enables you to do that. On the cross, Jesus secured our salvation. But he also secured our glorification that one day we will be everything that Jesus wants us to be and we will be with him in heaven. But he secured all that. So the cross is also the power. As you look at his love, his death for you, you get strengthened by that. You get encouraged by that. So let's just come before the Lord. I know today was a little bit of a heavier message than normal, but, but oh, it's so needed to hear Jesus' call. It is so needed. Let's just come before him. I don't know what you guys are doing with your lives. I don't know what preoccupies all your time and all your energy. But follow him. Follow him. Take up your cross. Follow him. Why try to save your life and then lose it in the end? Why? Even non-Christians, non-believers realize how little the world offers. People who quote-unquote make it. Why? Why go for that and lose it all in the end? Lord, help us, help us to lose our lives for you and gain eternal life. Thank you, Lord. So, Lord God, we worship you. We thank you. Let's just come before him right now. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you. We worship you. Confess your need for God. Say, God, I need you. I need you, Lord, to follow you, to take up my cross, to live every day, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, I need you. Let's just come before the Lord and pray these prayers. Thank you, Father.